Do you love being around an encourager? It's something. Do you have, just think for a second. Do you have somebody in your life that's an encourager? Think about, who, who are they? You know what I love about an encourager? Those little texts that you get, right? Those little cards in the mail they send to you. Uh, those right-in-the-moment messages that you needed that nobody else knew, but somehow God said, whoop, and put it right there in your plate. And you said, man. It's those type of people that when they walk into the room, you just start, hey, I, I'm going to go talk to so-and-so. <laughs> I'll see you later. And you, and you find yourself right next to the encourager. Who in here wants to be an encourager? If you're struggling with uh, rejection, you should change your approach in relationships and become an encourager. I love an encourager because the conversation's always about you, right? What are you doing? Oh, it's a hard, ah, don't worry about that. Hey, you know what? Here's what I know about you. I love an encourager. I love that. They're always ready to celebrate you, encourage you, challenge you. I love an encourager. And encouragers, can I tell you, are a special piece in the body of Christ. If you don't possess skill or talent uh, or knowledge or any other visible giftings, things that can be measured in demonstration, let me just challenge you to be an encourager. Now you think, oh, Pastor Scott, you just said I got to be, I can be dumb without skill and ability and I can just be almost pointless except for the fact that I'm an encourager. Yes. I don't care what you bring to the table as long as you can bring some encouragement. I will always want you on my team. If you ever played sports growing up and you had that little runt of a guy who couldn't do anything, but he's always out there like, get, get, that's right, that's my team, that's my team. You wanted him always on your team. Because you knew that no matter how much you messed up, that guy was in your back pocket and he made you feel bigger than you actually were. I love an encourager. Some of y'all didn't have coaches for encouragement. They were the other ones. And uh, they took that away. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. I was thinking about encouragers, and I was thinking about uh, cheerleaders. Cheerleaders, you know. Uh, but cheerleaders ask for the game of football. I want you to know something maybe you don't know. And I don't mean just to be real so fast this morning. But uh, cheerleaders have no knowledge or strategy to offer the game of football. None. They ain't got nothing. They ain't got no skill or no muscle that would prove effective in the power eye formation. They would just show up short every play. They don't even bring water to the guys on the field. No service, no servitude, right? They can't even offer their presence on the line to say we may be going down, but we're going down together. They can't even do that. They can't even, they can't even offer that. And so for all functional purposes, cheerleaders are completely pointless. In the game of football, until it's fourth and one. And when it's fourth and one, you hear all of this, okay. You know what I mean? That's what you hear. <laughs> and you look over there and you hear this going on, and you're like, it's fourth and one, it's fourth and one, it's fourth and one, all right? And they're getting ready, you know, they get, they, get, they get their little thing and they kick out and do the K's and, you know, whatever. I don't do all that. I'm not that flexible. But, you know, it's fourth and one. Or the team's up 24 points. And they're like, ladies, ladies, ladies. Okay, we got to do something right here. Or you're the underdog and you catch a pick six, right? You don't need two more scores to win. And that's when the, that's when the team steps up. What I love about the cheerleaders is this. They come to tell you. 
in case you forgot in a hard time, there's more to you than this. You better get back on the field. There's more to you than this. Uh huh. Let me remind you who you are. Let me remind you that you belong to a team. Let me remind you who that team is. I love a cheerleader who knows how to convey confidence and value and esteem. A good cheerleader knows how to bring the intangible things. Though she can't bring strength or skill or muscle or strategy, what she does bring is a a little heart to the game. In fact, I would say that a cheerleader slash an encourager knows how to look you right in your situation and say, I don't know what you're doing, but it's that way. It's that way. Go that way. And they have the ability to see the worst situation and say, okay. I want to know, do you got an encourager in your life that when you get to a hard place in life, they can look at you and say, Okay, what are we going to do from here? And so if you feel like you don't offer anything in the body of Christ, let me just tell you, work on your encouragement. Work on your encouragement. Let me give you four characteristics to work uh, on in being an encourager. Four characteristics just to help you out. I'm helping your social skills. I'm helping you get promoted. I'm helping your marriage thrive. Four characteristics of an encourager. Encouragers naturally draw people to them. Right? If you have some distance in your marriage, start encouraging your spouse. See what happens. Encouragers communicate with a positive bias. Notice the positive keyword there, a positive bias. Nobody wants to be around a negative bias encourager. <laughs> That's not an encourager. <clears throat> Number three is this, that encouragers invest generously in others. They invest generously in others. In other words, they put their money where their mouth is. They believe it, and they're for it. They believe you heart and soul. They can do it. And the fourth one is this, that encouragers are grateful for what they have. And what that does is it frees them to not compare what you have with what I have. It frees them from that trap, and they can just trust and believe and encourage you to have more. Even though you feel like, I don't have enough what it takes. You know what? They're not even worried about them themselves because they're so grateful. They teach you the heart of gratefulness, and they allow you to become an encourager yourself. We all need to practice encouraging. Amen? A scholar once said, it is clear that in the primitive churches, the care of souls was not delegated to an individual officer. Or even the more gifted brethren among them, it was a work in which every believer might have a share. And that's true. We should have that for ourselves. That everyone here is responsible for the gift of encouraging. Everyone can do it. Encouraging is a matter of decision. You can decide to encourage and you can decide to discourage. And so today we're going to look at two different churches and one who knows how to encourage and one who is in desperate need of it. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we love and thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you would stretch us today, God. Some of us, Lord, don't need to be stretched that much. We've already been gifted. But, God, there are those of us who so desperately need and long for the ability, God, for the words that come out of our mouth, Lord, to bless and stretch and cheer people on. I pray, God, give us, God, give this church that when people come from the different places of life, when they come through these doors, that they know they've been encouraged by being here. 
I ask that you would do that, Father, in a supernatural way. In Jesus' name, amen. So first let me talk to you about the church of Thessalonica. This was the encouraging church. Paul said he got this right. And if you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You already know it. For you yourselves are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul says, you got it right, Thessalonica. You got it right. So my question is, is Paul, if they got encouragement right, what does that look like? In fact, Paul begins to lay it out, and Paul says, here's what you should do. And he lays out his instructions, his commands, and his encouragement. And then he comes behind, that, behind himself, and he says, this is what you're doing right. So let's look at what Paul was saying so that we might know. So let me just tell you, this is... This is what we need to be doing. If you're, if you're trying to learn, I'm going to give you so many ways to be an encourager today. So just keep that pen rolling. We'll keep notes on the screen all day long. Paul's encouragement first off was this. Stay hopeful. Stay hopeful. Under political pressure and a heavy-handed government that spoke of false peace, he said stay hopeful. In, in uh, verse 2, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Regardless of what's going on right now on earth, you better know that one of these days that the Lord will come. Stay hopeful. And there also seemed to be some concerns uh, about some loved ones who were lost, and they thought they missed, uh, that the ones who, are, who had already passed away, they may have missed the, the return of Christ. In fact, the return of Christ was such a huge theme to the Thessalonians that Paul had to come down there and say, listen, get back to work. Jesus ain't coming tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, he could, but he's not. You know, and so get back to work. And so they were just abstaining from different walks of life or facets of life because they were so sure he was coming tomorrow. We need to preach the return of Christ like Paul was preaching the return of Christ. He thought it was going to be tomorrow, and that was 2,000 years ago. And so he's saying to us, or he's saying to those people who, who were concerned, he says, listen, those who died, verse 10, those who died for us, uh, I'm sorry, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So don't worry about that. Stay hopeful. Keep your mind on Christ's return. And then he says this. He says, they were not forgotten. You should know that you're not forgotten. Verse 3, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so he's saying, listen, 
I know you're suffering. I know you're going through some hardships right now. I know the government's heavy-handed on you. I know they're promising peace and security. But listen, sudden destruction will come, and they will not escape. You are not forgotten. The Lord will show up and rescue you. So therefore, don't get tired and don't give up. Don't get fatigued and well-doing and become like the world. Because that was an opportunity there that they would wear out. Y'all know how it is sometimes you just push, the, you push it too hard. You're going too hard. You get tired and well-doing. And next thing you know, when you get physically tired, you get emotionally tired. When you get emotionally tired, you get spiritually tired. And Paul is saying, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake. Let us keep awake and be sober. And the last thing he tells this church who's who's encouraging, he says, I want you to know to remember God's word. Trust God's word and count on his character. Verse 9, he says, God is not destined for us, uh, us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling this church, stay hopeful. Know you're not forgotten. Don't get tired and give up. And remember God's word. Now, for me, I want to say, now, Paul, why was there a need for encouragement? Was this just like a real happy church? And they were just encouraging each other in the word and scripture and, you know, uh, and, and just was just a great church. And there wasn't no real problems at all. No, not at all. I mean, uh, the, the, the church of uh, uh, Thessalonica is a, is a church going through some hardships. They needed some encouragement. They had two serious pressures, and one was a political pressure and one was a religious pressure. There was political pressure. As we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. We see in Acts 17 when Paul and Silas first went to establish the church that they suffered a lot of political pushback because they were preaching Jesus. And they didn't like that because Jesus was king. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We're a free city. We, we operate under the rule of Rome and Caesar Augustus. And so we're a free city because we practice emperor worship. Our rights and our freedoms come from the emperor. There's no other king except Jesus. But we just sing a song that there is no other, I'm sorry, no other king except Augustus. But we know that there's no other king except Jesus. And so they didn't like that. And so they, they, they got mobs together and they ran Paul and Silas out. And here we are again in the same place. In fact, it says that they formed a mob and they were going to uh, attack the, the house churches. And so here we see there is a political pressure, but also there was this thing called uh, Pax Romana, and that is uh, a Roman peace. Paul made an allusion to this, and he said, where they say uh, peace and security in verse 3. That, that peace and security was what Rome actually used as propaganda to let you know that everything's okay. See, I didn't understand this, but when I, I watched The Chosen, I was always wondering why in the world were they worried about peace all the time, you know? Uh, and Scripture alludes to this as well, but I didn't realize it until I was watching The Chosen. They were always worried about people assembling together and getting together and making all the ruckus because Rome believed that peace and security was a sign of divinity upon the emperor. Because if the emperor established peace throughout the whole uh, land, the whole province, then that meant that the gods had favor upon them and that they granted them peace. So emperors were trying to establish peace, and they did for about 200 years. Uh, establish peace, but they did it through ways that were not peaceful. And so here um, Paul is saying, 
that were under this great political pressure. They were putting out coins with their images um, of, the, of the emperor on that with peace and security on the coins to remind them. And they were proclaiming peace. But here's how Rome was doing that. Rome would beat down anybody who would resist their type of peace. And in fact, Rome's type of peace only existed because there was no resistance that still wanted to step up against it. And so what we see is simply that Rome was not a true peace. They were pressuring people to conform to a social norm and a political norm and a religious norm. So that way that, that fake peace would exist. There was also religious pressure because there was a, a, a worship of many gods. There was polytheism there. And so the people of Thessalonica, they, they worship uh, several gods. And Paul mentioned this in verse 1-9. He says, for they themselves reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols, to serving the living and true God. And what you must understand is that when you worship in a culture that worships polytheistically, then what you have is you have events and you have games and you have festivals that all worship these other deities. But what happens when you don't show up? People know. Not a huge town. Got about 300 people in this town. We know where everybody's at. And so when we know you're not here at this festival or you're not even at this event or you're not at the Olympic-style games, then you must not be for us, so therefore you must be against us. And so those people were, were, were labeled the persona non grata. What it means is, is that people were just not welcome in their family, in businesses, in all their aspects of life. Those people were considered not welcome because they did not worship other gods. And so their social and their business network relationships all failed. So here's what you see. You see, I mean, I don't can you imagine living in this type of world? Can you imagine living in a world where people uh, protected by their freedoms of their country would be forced to trust their government over their God? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine uh, being in a country where they would be ostracized by their faith in God? and the rejection of the culture's view of one salvation but many gods? Can you imagine that they would live in a place where they would lose their welcome status with family and friends and businesses if they failed to practice social norms of the day? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that they had their freedom stripped for the safety's sake? Can you imagine that they would live in a place that peace only existed because of a lack of resistance there was to the oppressive rule? I'm still talking about Rome. Did y'all have another country in mind? <laughs> you see, they understood the oppression in a far more greater way than you and I did. And so Paul's contrast here in saying, let me bring out a few things to remind you how to be encouraged. And so I want you to know is that I would suggest to us today that encouragement begins with understanding the difference between experience and expectation hardship and hope and that what the world promises heaven guarantees there is a difference in that and so there is a encouragement that we can find so first let me just address the peace and security issue here roman rome had this propaganda of peace and security that created a hardship for christians but there was a reminder that the day of the lord was coming encouragement is that regardless of what this world offers to you and me that what this world goes through, no matter what heartache we receive by the hand of man or by the enemy himself, our home is not this home. 
This is not the place we were built to be, destined to be, or reside. But our place is somewhere altogether better and other. And so we ought not get caught up in this moment. And even while we're here in this moment suffering by the enemy's strategy, let me remind you that the Lord said, I know how they're treating you. I'm paying attention. I'm writing it down on my scroll. And I want you to know Isaiah 63 verse 4, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. There is a day when the Lord will come back and say, I'm going to pay back to you everything you did to my people and I'm not just going to do it but I've been thinking about it for a long time so when I show up you better know my wrath comes it's nothing like when your daddy shows up on the scene when you're getting beat down and you're like you got it you're going to be in for it. you wait my sister used to whoop me good but I knew that as soon as my dad found out we were both getting whoopings amen it was great it was great I may be going down, but you are too. You're going to get it too. So <laughs> there was some encouragement we could find in that. But also Paul brings a contrast to the light and the darkness, the day and the night, sleep and awake. He said hardship is like living in a land of darkness and a land of troubles. But hope is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It's being able to walk in the darkness but not being blinded by it. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. They're finite. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Keep our mind on the things that are eternal. Keep your hope on things that are eternal. Hardship is the night season we go through in life, and the night season of life is a hard walk to go through. When it feels like everything is a bump in the dark, when it feels like every step you take is the wrong one, but there's hope in the fact that nights don't last always. Psalms 35, you probably know it, for his anger is but for a moment, but in his favor is a lifetime. For weeping may, in, may endure or, or tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There is a power in the day when the sun arises. And because of this, Paul tells us to stay sober, stay away. Don't give in. Don't get apathetic. Don't get soft on me. Don't just give in to the world because the wave just keeps coming after you over and over and lulls you to sleep. But he says, stay awake. Stay sober. Paul begins to address us like soldiers in the army. You guys know Paul loves the Roman soldier and how he depicts them and strengthening the Christian. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. But notice how Paul ends ends chapter 5. He ends it with encourage one another. Now the word encourage is a Greek word, parakaleo, and what that simply means is this, it's a military term because he's just told us how we should represent and we should, we should clothe ourselves like a soldier. And now he gives us a military term and this military term simply says this, it's, it's a leader who comes down to his men and says, listen, that's a dark fight in front of us. It's going to be hell on earth, but be ready. 
I want you to take action. I want you to get there and prepare yourselves for a fight. I want you to brave an, an intimate battle, and I want you to have courage and commitment to win, regardless of the difficulty that lies ahead. He's saying this, no matter what we see, no matter what you go through, know this, that the glories of winning a major victory are about to be ahead of us. We may suffer. We may go through some trauma. We may, we may go through some hurt and some pain. But you have to know that there is an end and there is a victory. And you will be a part of that victory. And so as he begins to tell this, as he uses that word, parakaleo, to explain this to the church of Thessalonica, he also has another word that translates over into Hebrews. And so uh, the, the church of Thessalonica, they were a church that knew encouragement, but the church that was written to in Hebrews was a church that needed encouragement. They were a discouraged church. And so that same word that we see over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, pops up here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. And it says this, you've heard it before, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together like we're doing right now, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, pericolea, one another, and all the more as you see the day, that same one found in 1 Thessalonians, that day drawing near. And so although the verbiage is the same, the difference in these is found in the churches that they're addressing. For one's encouraged and one's discouraged. The church of Hebrews is going through some hardship. Here's what we know just by surveying Scripture. They endured hard struggles with suffering. They had experienced public disgrace and public beatings. They shared jails with people for the cause of Christ, and their property had been taken from them, stolen from them because of their rejection. But even though all those things had happened to them, what they found themselves were responding in a way that they endured all those hardships. They had compassion on those in prison, and they joyfully accepted people taking their stuff because they knew they had better stuff in heaven. And so the writer says to these people of the Hebrew church who are discouraged, these are the things that I encourage you not to do and not to do. Don't get discouraged. First off is watch the drift, church. Watch the drift. Hebrews 2.1 says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Did you hear that part? Don't just breeze past it. We must, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Can I tell you that there is a soft gospel in circulation right now? There is a soft message of Christ that many people will come to. I don't know that will save them. I hope that it will. But we must pay attention to what we hear in the Word of God. It is important and imperative that you are in your Word yourself. And In fact, I would just challenge you. You don't have to trust anything I have to say. Let, let my sermon be a prop to you to go find it and discern it on yourself. If I'm preaching truth, you'll find truth. And so let me just encourage you that you need to dig into the word yourself on a devotion that is daily. Is that, that's a lot, Pastor Scott. Do, listen, you need it. Because if you don't, you might be drifting and not know it. That could be the reason why we might be discouraged. Is because we're drifting and not know it. Hebrews 2.3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect, oh, if we neglect such a great salvation? 
What is he talking about here? He said, this is a greater salvation than that of the Old Testament. For the Old Testament, you had to do a whole lot of stuff. And, and it wasn't always sure. That you, could, you, could, you could be out of favor with God and, and in favor with God in a matter of an action. But this salvation is much, much greater because everything that you need to do has already been done. So since this is a much better salvation, how can you neglect all that needs to be done for you? If you'll just acknowledge it, receive it. Third thing is, is don't stop believing. I couldn't get past that song. That song is on my head. And as soon as I said that, I thought, don't stop believing. Oh, oh, I don't hear that. But you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. All right, Hebrews 3.19. He says, don't stop believing. So that, so that they were unable to enter because of belief. There was a rest that Jesus had that he was comparing to the Old Testament. That when they left Exodus, that God had prepared the promised land. And he says that was a great rest. But I tell you that Jesus has a much greater rest for you and I. And he says if you will maintain faith and don't uh, give in to unbelief, then you will have that rest that you're looking for. So don't stop believing he says, also, don't get discouraged. He sees your work and your love. Chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Don't think that God doesn't see you. Can I tell you one of the biggest lies the enemy tells you is that no one sees you. That you're alone in your problem. You're alone in your marriage. You're alone in your debt. You're alone in your sin. You're alone in your addiction that you're all by yourself. And nobody knows what you're going through. And nobody's experienced what you've experienced. That you're all alone. But the Lord says, listen, I see you. Don't get discouraged. Continue working. Continue loving. Continue pushing forward. And then he says, he ends it all up like this. Don't shrink back. Don't move away. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their, their, their souls. Can I tell you that the Lord does not require or desire for us to shrink back in any way because he's wondering why would you shrink back when everything you need is right here? I remember struggling one time when I was a young man and my youth pastor came to me and he said, Scott, he goes, I don't understand. I see your actions in life. He goes, I see you come real close to Christ and then... All of a sudden, it'll just change, and then you're just living like everybody else that's coming to youth with you. And so I don't understand what's going on in your life. And I just told him, I said, look, man, here's how it is. I do really good for a few hours. I'm doing good. I'm walking in the Lord. Wake up tomorrow, go to school. It's difficult. It's difficult. And then I'll, I'll get exposed to some kind of temptation, and I'll mess up. And then, and then man, I just say, ah, oh, forget it. I can't ever get this down. And I said, so I, that's why I'm back and forth. And he says, you know what? That makes me think that you're this soldier in the army. And you go out there, and you're fighting for God, and it's a hard struggle. But the moment Scott gets shot, all of a sudden you drop to your knees, and you're crawling over to the enemy side. Oh, you got me. You got me. He said, why wouldn't you pick yourself up and go back 
to the place that you were fighting for. Why would you go to the enemy side when it's the enemy doing the shooting? Why don't you have the confidence to go back to the place that sent you out there and the skill and the strength and the courage that you went out there in the first place? And I had no real answer to that. I was 16 and pretty dumb. But, but I understood nowadays in my life that we do that now in our adult life. That we mess up. We don't, we don't do what we feel like we should do. We fail or we don't read the word. We, don't, we miss an opportunity to worship God or honor God. And we feel all of a sudden, man, I missed it. And what do we do? Well, I'm going over to the enemy side because I, I must belong over here where they shoot and kill people. You know what I mean? The Lord is saying, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Press forward. Don't give up. And for sure, don't cross over to the enemy side. So those are the things he said not to do. But here's what he said to do. He says, be encouraged. Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first hand by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. You need to know that Jesus procured your salvation all by himself. It was him who suffered in every way. You can have hope and encouragement knowing that whatever it took to find salvation, Jesus did it. And that he understood every affliction, every amount of suffering, and every temptation he had to go through to reach salvation. He understands it, and he's in heaven right now praying for you. So be encouraged that you won't go through anything in life that your Savior didn't already go through for you. He understands where you're at. The second thing is trust Jesus, our great intercessor, who grants us confidence in knowing that we will receive what we need in our time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, won't read all of it, but the very end says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's what I'm saying a while ago. Don't go to the enemy's side, but draw to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help of our time of need. Number three is this. Trust in Jesus, our high priest, that gives us every assurance and blessing in God's new covenant and his covering. You need to know that Jesus made a better covenant for you, that what he's promised you, he guaranteed for you. You don't have to do anything extra. You have to receive what he's done for you. So when you get in that moment where you're discouraged or you have a friend who's discouraged, go back to the word and say, listen, I know you feel like you're discouraged because you lack. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the strength. You don't have the confidence. You don't have the resource or the willpower, but you should know that every promise in the word of God has been guaranteed for you and has been given to you if you'll trust in Jesus. For Hebrews 7 18 says this, for the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and useless, but thank God who is Jesus who has made the guarantor of a better covenant. He came along and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Number four is this, trust Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins who has made us righteous through faith. Thank the Lord that I don't ever have to walk up to God and say, I read my word today. Did you see my version plan, Lord? <laughs> that means I'm praying. That means I'm walking right. 
Lord, I haven't sinned in six months. I haven't succumbed to that addiction in six months. I'm doing everything right. So since I'm doing everything right, I need you to listen up. No, it's right the opposite. You can walk up to God and say, Lord, I have missed it straight, nonstop. Now, I don't appear before you in my righteousness, none at all. Because your word says you put me in Christ's righteousness. So when I stand before you, what you really see is a perfect son of God who did everything that his father asked him to do. And without blemish and without fail and with not only perfect deed, but perfect heart and perfect attitude. He did everything that you loved and accepted. And because you accepted him, you accepted me. And so I can come to him every day to the throne of grace knowing that it's never never my righteousness that gains me access, but it's always Jesus whose perfect sacrifice gave me my righteousness. And so what does this mean? How does this encourage us? How does this give us reason? Hebrews 10, 19 says, since we have confidence. And Hebrews 10, 21 says, since we have a great priest, here are the actions that we have or we should have. Since we have confidence in a great priest. He says, first off, draw near. Did you notice that? The first thing you need to do is draw near. Now, get your life right before you come to church. It's draw near. It's not get your finances straight before you start tithing. It's draw near. It's not any other thing that we do in terms of what we feel like we should prepare so we can live a righteous life. The first thing you should do to please God is draw near. Draw near. And draw near with confidence. Don't shy away from God, but go boldly into his presence. For those of you who know you have grandkids, you know your grandkids come boldly, boldly to ask for things they shouldn't have. (laughs) And somehow you give it to them anyway, right? Here you go. Now don't shoot nobody. But, you know, you, you, you give them because there's a heart. I got the Lord saying, you don't have to come to me like I'm, your, like I'm your father, but you can come to me even greater than that. You can come to me like I'm your grandfather because I'll give you whatever I can, so long as it doesn't hurt you, obviously. Second thing is this is hold fast. Have a steadfast hope. Hold on to the faith that you have, knowing that it gives you hope to persevere. Hold fast. And then stir up. Stir up love and stir up each other. Can I tell you that when you go through the hardest nights of your life, can I give you a small antidote? Find somebody else to make your life about. It's so easy when we go through pain and trial and suffering and affliction. It's so easy to focus on us because we're hurting. I remember when I, I had horrible back issues and, and uh, poor Julie, she was eight months pregnant with Aubrey. And I couldn't do anything for myself. And it was just all about me <laughs> because I was in pain, all about me. And you know, it reminds me how easy it is for us to become so self-centered, self-centered. Not, not that that's who we are, but, but when we go through hard times, all we focus on are the things that are right in front of us. But can I tell you to walk through the pains of life, to walk through the difficult things of life, get your eyes on other people. 
If you will learn to love other people and focus on other people, you will, you will no longer focus on yourself, but focus on people who need help, who need uh, encouragement and love. And what you will find is somehow the Lord will just miraculously take care of you. He will encourage you because he knows that when you love the least of these, he finds you becoming the least of these. And he turns people's hearts towards you. The last thing is simply this is encourage one another. As the time gets hard, know this, that the day draws near. As times get more difficult, Christ draws near. As I wrap up, I just want to remind you of a few things. That these commands and these instructions to encourage each other are not just real nice. And like I said earlier in the pre-meeting, these encouragements are not found on the bottom of a ceramic doll that says, this is why we believe in Jesus. But these scriptures have real power. I know they have real power because Hebrews 11 tells me they have real power. We see this, the heroes of faith, these people who poured out their life and they believed in God to do what only God can do. And what I find in this unusual list of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, there's also this prostitute named Rahab in the middle of all this. And so here are these people who went through great suffering and came out on the great side of life. And amongst these giants was a prostitute that they listed in the heroes of faith. And what you see simply is this, is that Rahab wasn't anybody really special. She was just someone who was willing to pay, put their faith in God at a real hard time in life. That's what God's calling you and me to do. In fact, he said there were more people than just that. There were people who were victorious over their circumstances. They subdued kings, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong, became valiant in battle. Women who received their dead were raised to life again. And then there were some who were victorious under their circumstances where they were tortured, received a better resurrection, underwent trials of mocking, endured chains and imprisonment, were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, spiritually, socially, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, they were people who this world was not worthy of, and they had no place to call their home and lived in dens and caves of the earth, but they did all of that on the promise that Jesus might come. So the question is this, if they went through all of that and were that because of the promise, what does your life and my life look like now that we have proof? They were hoping that everything they gave their life for was true, but we can look back at the cross and say it was true. And so we can encourage ourselves that no matter what we go through, we know we can move through it, and we can take those with us because everything we need is found right there in his name. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you this morning. Simply, would you say, Pastor Scott, I'm going through a hard season, and I need encouragement. Period. That's just me. I need encouragement. I need you to pray with me and pray for me. I need to lift up my chin and square my shoulders and remind me who I am and whose team I belong on. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I need encouragement. 
You might say, Pastor Scott, I, I need more than just encouragement. I want to be an encourager. I struggle at encouraging. I'm a pessimist or a realist or whatever you might say, but I need to be an encourager. I need to encourage the body of Christ. If that's you, would you just raise your hand with me this morning and say, I, I, I need to encourage. And the last is this. Maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. Maybe you're not on the team that always wins. But you're tired of fighting in your life. And you need a body to come alongside of you and not judge you and love you. You need to know the Christ who died for you and guaranteed every promise written in his word. And you're ready to receive both life and love and forgiveness. If that's you, just slip your hand up this morning. Let me see who you are. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord. I ask you. As we leave out of this place, Lord, I, I pray, God, for just a spirit of encouragement. Knowing, God, that your word is faithful for us. Knowing that your power is great in us. My ask, God, is that there are those here this morning, they desperately need your word to exist in their life. And I pray that you would use us, God, mobilize this body to be encouragers. That we wouldn't just have the ability, God, to um, encourage, but also the ability to discern. That even before they open their mouth, God, we can read into their life and look at them through the, through the eyes that, um, of their soul, Lord, and realize that they need an investment. I pray, God, today that they would find courage, Lord, in the scriptures and the promises of your word. And I pray for the rest of us, God, this morning that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit to operate in the power that you desire us to operate in so that we might lift people, encourage them, and show them their value and their love in Jesus Christ. I ask it, Father, in Jesus' name we pray this morning.